Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, beginning in the 11th chapter at the first verse. So please turn in your Bibles and we'll begin. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but still was in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, 
and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, thank you that you heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the count of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today, Christians all over the world gather to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified on Friday, dead, placed into a tomb, and on the third day, rose victoriously from the grave, forever conquering death. It is a glorious truth. It is a game-changing reality. And this morning, I want to spend some time focusing on why it matters for us. Now, there's a lot we could say there, right? Theologically, we could get into the fact that the resurrection demonstrates Jesus was exactly who He claimed to be. It demonstrates His divinity. And we could talk about how the resurrection ensures our justification, how the resurrection ensures our regeneration. But I want to work in a lane a little bit more narrow this morning. I want to focus on the fact that the resurrection matters because every single one of us in this room are marching in the same direction. In other words, every single one of us in this room are marching to the grave. With every single rising and setting of the sun, we are all one day closer to our last day on this earth. With each passing day, every one of our loved ones, you can think of their names, are all one step closer to death. And while we don't like to think about that, talk about it, we all know it's true. Unless the Lord Jesus comes again in our lifetime, come Lord Jesus, but unless He comes again, every single one of us will face death. We'll face our own death, and if we live a somewhat normal lifespan, we will face the death of a number of our loved ones. And so, this morning as we consider the resurrection, we are going to dig into a passage that is applicable to every single one of us on so many different levels, as it's going to cause us to think about death, our own death, the death of a loved one, 
It's going to cause us to think about our reaction to death. And more importantly, it's going to help us think about life after death. See, this morning we're going to go after this idea of resurrection a little bit differently. This morning we're going to focus on a text where we see Jesus raise a man named Lazarus who's been in the grave for four days, and in so doing, he demonstrates that he alone, Jesus alone, has the power over death. And in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection and the embodiment of eternal life. We're going to see that his miracle of raising Lazarus points us ahead to His own resurrection, and that both of these resurrections together give us all the confidence in the world that for those in Christ, we too will rise from the dead. So if you're not already there, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, and I'm going to begin by rereading the first 16 verses. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now... Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant that he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let me give you just a little bit of context here. If if you were to turn and look at the previous chapter, you would see that towards the very end of that chapter, the Jewish leaders pick up large stones and try to kill him by stoning him to death. We see that he eludes their efforts, and we're, we're told that he, he went away to the other side of the Jordan River. And this is important to keep in mind because this puts Jesus about a hundred miles from Bethany where Lazarus lived. And so as we come into John 11, we find out that Lazarus, who's the brother of Mary and Martha, Lazarus is sick, deathly sick. So Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus, a hundred miles away, and and, and they tell him, Lazarus, the one whom you love, is sick. And don't don't miss what Jesus says. He, He tells the messengers, this illness will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Now, if you know John's gospel, you know he did something very similar just two chapters 
earlier in the narrative of the man born blind. At that point, they're coming along, and they see a man begging, a man born blind, and the disciples ask a theological question. They want to know what's going on here. Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents that resulted in the state that he's in? And Jesus said, you're wrong. Neither this man sinned or his parents that caused this. He said, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, this man was born blind for the glory of God. The man was born blind so Jesus could show the whole world that he had come to open the eyes of the blind. And in particular, when you read that narrative, his point is that he came to open the eyes of those who are blind spiritually. And so now here in John 11, Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick. He understands very clearly the score. He knows he's on his deathbed. And Jesus says, this will not end in death but this will end in the glory of God. The result of this sickness, Jesus says, is that the Son of God will be glorified. The result of this sickness is that countless people, both those present at that moment and countless others like us who will read about it later, that they'll see the glory of Christ, see the power of Jesus, and humbly believe in Him who alone has power over death. See, brothers and sisters, this passage is here to build our faith. This passage is here so that no matter what we walk through, no matter what sickness we might go through, no matter what sickness a loved one might go through, we are reminded here that our hope is not ultimately and finally in doctors. It's not ultimately and finally in earthly healing or anything along those lines. This passage reminds us that our hope is ultimately and finally in Jesus. And this plays into what we read in verses 5 through 6. Look back at the text and notice that it's actually Jesus' love for Lazarus and Mary and Martha that compels him to wait until Lazarus is dead before he leaves on what he knew would be a four-day journey to get to where Lazarus was. Look back at verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, So, or therefore, that's an inference, therefore, because of his love, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I mean, at first pass, this is a classic non sequitur. I mean, John tells us he he loved them. He loved Martha. He loved Mary. He loved Lazarus. Therefore, and what you expect after the therefore is that he gathers the disciples, he goes and hires out the fastest horses or camels he could get on, and he gets there in a heartbeat. That's precisely not what happened. Jesus got word, Lazarus is dying, and we're told that he loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and that precisely because of his love, we're told that instead of hurrying off to heal him, he actually stayed where he was for two more days. And we don't want to miss this. I I, I think this is important. We don't want to miss the fact that it was because of Jesus' love for them that He allowed them to go through the pain of Lazarus' death. It was because of His love for them that He didn't immediately come running. 
He knew something else was more important in their lives and in the lives of countless other people. See, Jesus waited two more days so that all could see firsthand Jesus' glorious demonstration of His power over death. Because of His love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, because of His love for His disciples, because of His love for us, church, Jesus waited until Lazarus was dead. And it's clear as we put the text together that it's only after Jesus divinely ascertains that Lazarus has now, in fact, died that He makes His move. It's then that He goes to His disciples and informs them, men, pack your bags. We're going back to Judea. And their response is classic. Like, this would be a funny scene in a movie. You kind of get the picture. They're sitting around. They're eating and drinking. They're having a grand old time. And Jesus comes and says, let's go, guys. Pack up. We're going back to Judea. And one of them spits out his drink, and the other one, like, chokes on his sandwich. And they're looking at each other like somebody talks some sense into them. I was thinking about when I was younger, you know, sometimes mom would send us out into the yard to play, and eventually we'd break something or do something, and it's like somebody's got to go tell mom and dad, you do it, you, you know, this back and forth. It's kind of like that, and so finally here, somebody has the nerve to speak up. Uh, teacher, in case you forgot, like, they don't like us a whole lot back there. So some of us guys, we, we're, we were doing some thinking and, you know, we were thinking that it'd be really good if we, like, I don't know, not go. Like, let's just stay right here. Jesus, the last couple times we've been in Judea, they, if you don't remember, they've picked up, like, these boulder-sized stones and tried to crush your skull. And with Jesus' parable about day and night, He essentially tells them, we're going. It's God's will that we go. And then He gives them the reason. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and we're going to go wake him up. Of course, they don't understand what he's talking about, so they're still not buying the validity of the trip. One of them says, Jesus, if he's just asleep, he can get an alarm clock. You know, with all due respect, he'll wake up. So then Jesus says very plainly, look, Lazarus is dead. And then he adds, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you might believe. So now, as we saw up in verses 5 and 6, Jesus waiting for Lazarus to die would not only benefit Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but the disciples as well. So Jesus insists we're going back to Judea. And so Thomas, not unlike what Peter would say a few days later, Thomas rather boldly says, all right then, let's go die with him. Of course, having no idea what he was really saying. Nevertheless, off they go. They start in Bethany beyond the Jordan. There's two Bethanies, so it's a little confusing. They start in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, way up in the northeast, and they walk all the way to Bethany by Jerusalem, which again, 100-mile walk roughly, about a four-day's journey on foot, which is, of course, why when they finally show up, Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. Look back at the text, verses 17 to 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. 
But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So Jesus discerns that Lazarus has died, again pointing to his divinity as no one had to tell him that he had died, he just knew. And it was only then that he takes off on this four-day journey. And we're told that when they arrive, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days, and this is an important fact for this narrative. This drives home the reality that Lazarus was really dead. He he was not asleep. He was not sick. He was dead. His body would have already been in the decay process, which is why Martha speaks of the stench a little later on. So, 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 Jesus comes into town. Martha hears He's arrived, and she immediately goes out to Him. Now, she doesn't come fussing at Jesus. I don't think that's at all what's going on here. Look, look, look at what she does. She's affirming His power. What, what's going on is she's mourning her brother, and she comes and she affirms, if you would have been here, He wouldn't have died. She understands that He has the power to heal. That's why they sent Him in the first place. And now she's grieving because from her limited perspective, He didn't make it on time. Even in this, though, she affirms that he's a great man of God and that God hears and answers his prayers. Jesus tells her, Martha, your brother will rise again. And not understanding all that Jesus is saying, you almost get the sense that she interrupts him. I mean, she's a good Orthodox Jew after all. She believes in the resurrection on the last day. And so she's like, yeah, 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 I know he'll rise again in the final resurrection. But Jesus says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day, and Jesus boldly affirms, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, this is one of Jesus' I am statements that John's gospel is so well known for. There's actually two kinds of I am statements. There's uh, the ones that they call an absolute I am statement, where the I am just kind of hangs out there, looking back to Old Testament text making it clear Jesus is, in fact, God. And then you have I am statements like this one that have a predicate, which tell us more about Jesus' role among humanity. And here, He's making the very important point. He is the resurrection and the life. In other words, the resurrection and eternal life, and I say it like that because in John, life is always eternal life. Resurrection and eternal life are both bound up in Jesus. Without Jesus, there's no resurrection. Without Jesus, there's no eternal life. Because of sin and sin's curse, if Jesus doesn't conquer the grave, then we won't either. Thus, He is the resurrection and the life. And He goes on to explain both of these terms and what follows. First, regarding the resurrection, He says, "'Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live.'" And this is, this is pointing to the resurrection of Christ's followers. This is a promise that flows out of Jesus being the resurrection. For those who are trusting in Christ, who was Himself raised from the dead, 
Though we die in the flesh, we will live precisely because we too will be raised from the dead. He further explains the life or the eternal life in the next line when he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, because eternal life is bound up in Jesus, those who believe in him will never die in the sense seen in chapter 5, that those who believe have already crossed over from death to life. See, eternal life, when we come to believe, has begun. It's already here, though not yet consummated. And in that sense, Christians never truly die. For as Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, I want to pause for just a minute because I do think we learn a little something about comforting people in their grief from Jesus' teaching here. I want you to notice that as Martha comes to Jesus in this most painful moment of grief, He consoles her by pointing to Himself. And I think we can learn from this. As we console brothers and sisters grieving, there's no doubt a place for listening. There's no doubt a place for grief and even outrage at death itself, as we'll see in a moment. There's a place for weeping with those who weep, helping in areas of need, providing meals and such. And yet at some point, the most important thing we can do is continually point one another back to Jesus, the one who is the resurrection and eternal life. That is the only thing we have that actually offers real and lasting hope. In our deepest loss, whether facing our own sickness and impending death or grieving the loss of a loved one, brothers and sisters, we need more than friendship. We need more than a helping hand. Listen, those things are important, not negating them at all. But what we need most is Jesus. We need to be reminded of Jesus, who He is, what He's done, what He promises. Jesus consoles Martha, pointing to Himself. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in Me shall never die. And then He asks her, do you believe this, Martha? And look how she responds. She responds in humble faith. I think it's important, if you know this gospel, it's important that she confesses faith even before seeing the sign He's about to perform. And, and, I, and I want you to notice what she believes. In John's purpose statement, which is huge in this particular book, John's purpose statement in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, we read, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which were not written in this book, but these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name precisely what Martha confesses. In humble faith, she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Now, we don't want to overstate this at this point in the narrative. She doesn't have it all figured out yet. She's certainly not saying that she believes that he's about to perform this miracle, because we're going to see in a few verses that she's not expecting this. But we do see a humble confession that Martha believes Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah. And that said, John doesn't camp out and elaborate on that point. He keeps the narrative moving right into verses 28 to 37, where we see Jesus' outrage at sin and death. Look at verse 28 and following. 
when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? We see a little bit of a different interaction with Jesus and Mary than we saw between Jesus and Martha, almost certainly because Martha had the opportunity to talk to Jesus in private, whereas Mary comes with the whole crowd And a little background I think is helpful here because in our culture, it would seem to me just by observing that what's considered appropriate at most funerals where we live in our culture is a certain kind of controlled, quiet mourning. Even when there's weeping, it it does tend to be a subdued weeping, right? You walk into a funeral home and there's usually a quiet hush over the funeral home and Quiet words are shared like my condolences and things like this, but in other cultures, that is absolutely not the case. What's expected as the norm in many other cultures would be loud weeping and wailing. And the louder the weeping, the more it would demonstrate how much you love that person. And that was certainly the case in first century Judaism, so much so that there was a Jewish custom that even a poor family was expected to hire at least two flute players and one professional wailing woman to make sure and to help that the family is able to adequately mourn the loss of the loved one. That's what was considered respectful. The, The more volume, again, the more the person was loved. And since we can discern from John's gospel that this family was anything but poor, it would be evident that by the time Mary got to Jesus, it would have been quite the scene. I mean, verse 33 says, many of the Jews who were mourning with Mary got up to follow her as she was going to the tomb to weep. And again, that was the kind thing to do. Like some of us would be like, leave me alone, I need some private time. But, but the kind thing to do for her was not to give her privacy. The kind thing would be to follow along with the flutes and the, and the wailing. And if there was a lull in the wailing, the professional wailing woman would get things amped up again. So this is the scene that approaches Jesus when Mary comes. And here amidst this commotion, this painful commotion, Mary comes up and essentially says the exact same thing as Martha, only her emotions are more clearly seen, right? She throws herself at his feet, and we're told that she's weeping. And don't miss Jesus' reaction. The ESV says that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the other Jews weeping, he was, quote, deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, I have to tell you, that is not a very good translation. In fact, most English translations don't come even close to the degree of emotions in the original Greek. To this point, D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, goes so far as to say, quote, it is lexically inexcusable 
to reduce Jesus' emotional upset to the effects of empathy, grief, pain, or the like, end quote. See, in the original, what we see is that he actually shook with anger and was severely troubled. So, so he's not just sad here, okay? The Bible says he shook with anger and was severely troubled. So I think it's important that we ask why. Why is Jesus, the creator of everything, angry and severely troubled? Well, some have tried to argue that it's because he felt pushed into this miracle. But I don't believe that for a moment. Jesus is never pushed into anything. Besides that, it's precisely why he made the 100-mile trek. Remember, he said, Lazarus is asleep. We're going to go wake him up. So it's not that. Some argue that it's because his friend has died. But that in and of itself doesn't seem to describe the level of emotion either, given that he knows he's about to raise him. I mean, if, if he knows he's going to raise him in just a couple of minutes, it's hard to imagine that that alone would bring about this kind of emotion that seems to overcome him. No, see, it would seem to me that the best answer is that Jesus, the creator of all there is, stood looking at death and the results of death, the anguish of his people, the weeping of the mourners. We, we, we've been studying Genesis and the fall and the results of the fall, and so here we see the creator of the world standing face to face with sin and the result of sin, which is death. And as the creator of the world, he knows this was not part of the original design. This is an enemy. This is an intruder that must be defeated. And thus, his shaking with anger and his being deeply troubled flows right out of his looking on people he loves who are confronted with sin and sin's curse. And thus he's both angry and he weeps. He shook with anger and he cried. And friends, I would submit to you that again, we can learn from our Savior here because we're all going to deal with death, both that of our loved ones and that of our own. And I alluded to this a little bit, but sometimes even in Christian circles, it seems to me that what's taught, or at least subtly communicated, is that if there's too much emotion over death, perhaps we're not processing with eyes of faith. I've heard well-intentioned people say things like, we should celebrate the death of a Christian, that a Christian funeral should be like a party because our friends have graduated, so to speak. And at one level, there's a degree of truth to that, but please don't ever say that to a husband standing over his wife's casket or a parent bearing a child. No. What I want us to see in Jesus' response is that he shows us that we don't have to be stoic in the face of death. In fact, I don't think we should be. Death is an enemy. Remember, death is the result of sin. Death is a horrible enemy. Death is the last enemy, Paul tells us, and we all know it. That's why, at one level, none of us are looking forward to it. Yes, for the Christian, we can say to live as Christ and to die as gain, because if, that, if to live as Christ is true, then I'm gaining what I was living for anyway. But death itself is ugly. And if you've ever been with a loved one who takes their last breath, you know precisely what I'm talking about. And if you don't, 
you will. It's painful. It hurts. It is so ever-loving sad. One's body loses its color. It goes from warm to cold. And of course, we know dead bodies immediately begin to decompose. And all of that is the result of sin. And everything within us cries out, it should not be this way. Brothers and sisters, remember, we were created for eternity. That's what's in our heart. Sin caused death, which is why everything within our being screams, something is not right here. Something is not right when we have to say goodbye, at least for now, to a loved one. Something is not right when someone dies early from our perspective. And so we grieve when we stand face to face with the effects of the fall. We groan when we see the effects of the curse. And yet, praise God, there's an end yet. And yet, we know this Jesus who is the resurrection and the life, amen? We know this Jesus who has the power over the grave. We know this Jesus who has conquered death itself. And so we can be angry at sin, and we can certainly hate its curse, and yet we can confidently trust in Jesus, who is in fact the resurrection and the life. So back to our text, Jesus shook with anger at sin and sin's curse, and He wept. And we see as you see so often in John's gospel that the Jews look at him and completely misunderstand. Some say, see how he loved him, and while that was true, like we've already seen, his weeping was so much deeper than that. Others said in unbelief, you can almost hear the sneer in their voice, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind, talking about John 9, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Quite frankly, we see this kind of unbelief all the time, don't we? We hear this kind of thing after a natural disaster, for example. If your God's so big, couldn't He have stopped that? And yet, those who make that kind of comment, like the Jews in this text, have no idea what God is doing in the midst of something that seems so tragic to us. Look back at the text as we conclude with what Jesus does here. Look at verses 38 to 44. Then Jesus deeply moved again. That's that same word from verse 33. Then Jesus shook with anger and came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time you will, there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Here Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, a man who's been decaying for four days. And this amazing, glorious sign, like all of the signs in John's gospel, point beyond itself. It points beyond the raising of this one man 
to the one who is the resurrection and the life. It points us to and brings glory to the only one who has power over death. This resurrection of Lazarus, while glorious in and of itself, points directly to Jesus' resurrection, which is the first fruits of the final resurrection. In other words, this resurrection of Lazarus, which by the way was only physical, right? He would die again. But his resurrection here is a remarkable demonstration of Jesus' power over death, pointing ahead to the final resurrection with a new eternal body. And as we think about the resurrection of Lazarus, and even more importantly, what it pointed to, the resurrection of Christ, we can be all the more confident that we too will be raised. See, today, that's what we're here to celebrate, the resurrection of Jesus, the one who has power over death as seen in this miracle. And we know, don't we, that He will cry out again on that last day, and all will come forth. As we put this passage together with John 5, we know that some will rise to a resurrection of judgment, and some will rise to a resurrection of eternal glory. Remember John 5, 28 through 29, Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good, in demonstration of regeneration, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. Let me just pause there and speak to any who might be here this morning who have never trusted in Christ. The promises of the resurrection of Christ's people are staggering. They are amazing. They're wonderful. But we need to be clear. They're only for those who are trusting in Christ. And so, friend, I would plead with you If you've never trusted Jesus, I would plead with you to look to Christ today, the one who came to go to the cross. On the cross, He bore the sin of of all who would believe in Him. He took our sin upon Himself and dealt with it fully. And then on the third day, He was raised from the dead, forever conquering death for those who trust Him. And so, friend, I would say, look to Christ, believe on Christ, even today. Well, what about for believers? While unbelievers go to a resurrection of judgment, those who are in Christ will be called out of the tombs on the last day and enter the resurrection of life, eternal life, where there will be no more death, and listen to this, no more concern of death. See, that's something I think we probably don't think of often enough, and it is a glorious truth. We don't often enough think about death as an enemy, but it is. Again, why is it that we don't like to sit around and ponder it? Why is it that we don't like to sit around and talk about it? Why is it that we do everything we can to fight it, right? We're constantly looking for all sorts of ways to extend life, maybe through exercise, maybe through nutrition, expand the medical field, but we all die. And we've already said something within us knows death just isn't right. And of course, we know the biblical narrative that it's not. It's an intruder. It wasn't supposed to be this way. It's a result of the fall. Death is terrible because of sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Because of sin, death is part of the punishment. But 
this glorious miracle we've witnessed this morning, coupled with Jesus' own resurrection, points to the reality of what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 when he boldly asserts, death will not have the final say, praise God. No, this enemy will be defeated once and for all when Jesus comes again in His glory and our bodies are raised imperishable. Death will then be swallowed up completely in victory. At that moment, Paul says, we will even taunt death. I mean, think about that. Of all the pain of death now. And Paul says, when Jesus calls us out of the grave, it's hard to get our minds around, but he says, we'll laugh at it. It's like, ha, that's it. That's all you were? See, only then will death be shown to be the weak, powerless enemy it really is. We will finally see that death has no power over God's people, and we will taunt it. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, we will say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And praise be to God, it's gone for all eternity. The sting of death will be gone for all eternity precisely because Jesus, the resurrection and the life, has power over death. King Jesus went to the cross and was crucified to bear the full measure of God's wrath so we wouldn't have to. He was crucified for us. He was crushed to bear the penalty we deserve to bear. And He was raised from the dead, demonstrating His power over death. And because Jesus has the power over death, death will not have the final say. No, the final word for the Christian, praise God, will not be death. It will be the glorious, joyful, awe-inspiring, never-ending fellowship with God and others with us in the new heaven and new earth. The final eternal word will be recreation, where we'll have the undeserved privilege of dwelling with our glorious God, living in the presence of God in the new heaven and new earth, something so awe-inspiring that the Bible says we're going to need new bodies and new minds to be able to enjoy in its full and so, brothers and sisters, this Easter Sunday morning, let us rejoice because the resurrection matters. It matters. It changes everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace to us. Lord, we thank You that Jesus died was buried and rose victoriously on the third day. Oh, Lord, we praise you. We worship you. We pray this in his name. Amen.